Welcome back to our video series on the Campaign of Armageddon. I'm your host, Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. This Campaign of Armageddon against the Lord began at Satan's fall back in Genesis when Satan hoped to fulfill his desire to be like God and be worshipped as God in a kingdom. This is why he will launch his all-out campaign to overthrow God's plan to send Christ back to reclaim and restore the earth and rule in righteousness for a thousand years. Satan's campaign of Armageddon is his final attempt to take control of the world and place himself on Christ's throne. In stage one of the campaign, we saw how Satan will use his false antichrist to assemble the armies of the world on the massive plain of Megiddo, or Armageddon, there in Israel. During stage two, we saw God miraculously destroys the antichrist capital city of Babylon. Now in our last video, we focused on the third stage of the campaign when the Antichrist and his army will attack and conquer Jerusalem. We learned that half of the population will go into captivity and the other half of the people will remain in Jerusalem to be humiliated and subjugated under Gentile control of God's holy city. This attack upon God's capital city will be the Antichrist's retaliating response to God for destroying Babylon. Over in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it tells us of this coming time. Zechariah writes, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil, that's Jerusalem, shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That is, that residue will be trapped in the city. Now this action concluded stage three of the Antichrist campaign. With all the Jews of Jerusalem under his complete control, Satan will begin the fourth stage of Armageddon by motivating the Antichrist to destroy God's obedient Jewish remnant in the land of Basra, in the city of Petra, where they are protected by God in this sheep-like refuge called Petra. Now, it may not be Petra, but I think it will be. First, it's important to understand that from the midpoint of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation, the Jewish population of the world will be divided into two distinct groups of Jews. Recall that at the start of the tribulation, there will be no saved individuals on the earth, for those who were saved prior to the tribulation will be raptured or caught up. It's at this point that the Antichrist, representing the Gentile governments at the start of the tribulation now, the Gentile governments will establish a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel that allows them to sacrifice and offer oblations on the Temple Mount. Israel will also be allowed to begin construction of a temple and to worship there. During this period of time, God assured the proclamation of the gospel by the testimony, first of all, by his two witnesses, whom I believe are Moses and Elijah, for they represent the law and the prophets. 
through them, 144,000 Jewish men will be saved hearing the testimony of the two prophets. And then that 144,000 Jewish evangelists will go out to evangelize the entire world, according to Matthew 24:14. For then shall the gospel go throughout the whole world. Just as in our day, people will be given the opportunity to either accept or reject the gospel of salvation by freely receiving Jesus Christ as Savior through faith alone during the tribulation. Now, at this time of the tribulation, they're either going to believe on Jesus Christ as the true Messiah or reject him and follow the false Antichrist. Again, Zechariah tells us that one-third of the Jewish population will choose to accept Jesus as Messiah during that first half of the tribulation. Sadly, the majority of Jewish people, that's two-thirds, will choose to reject the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, as they practice an outward form of religion and worship at the temple. These Jews and their leadership who have rejected Jesus Christ will not worship God in spirit and truth. Therefore, their worship will not be acceptable to God. In many ways, they will be like their Old Testament ancestors who polluted and desecrated the temple. And as a consequence, God brought the Babylonians to destroy the temple and to take the Jewish people into captivity in Babylon back in 586 B.C. Also, in Jesus' day as he walked on the earth, the Jewish people were looking only for a Messiah who would give them peace and prosperity. Therefore, they rejected Jesus Christ and they had him crucified. As a consequence, God used the Romans to destroy this temple and scatter them throughout the world in A.D. 70. Like their ancestors of Jesus' day, the majority of Jewish people at the start of the tribulation will prefer a false messiah, the Antichrist, who offers them peace and prosperity rather than deliverance from slavery and the penalty of sin. These Jews and their leadership will repeat their ancestors' historic rejection of the true Messiah. This time, God will allow the Antichrist to desecrate the temple and end Jewish worship at the midpoint of the tribulation. At that point, we need to look at Isaiah 66 and the prophecies that tell about that worship during that first half of the tribulation in order to learn what contributed to this division of the Jewish people. The beginning of this division began at the start of the tribulation when the Antichrist granted Israel permission to worship at the temple site. We can understand the growing division within Judaism when we see how God views the nation's worship during this time. Through Isaiah, God tells us how he viewed their worship in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. For the prophet declares that God, as creator and sustainer of the universe, cannot have a house built by human hands unless it is commanded by him and directed by him, according to 2 Samuel 7.13 and 
and Second Chronicles 6, verses 6 through 9. For you see, any human effort that is not directed by God merely fulfills men's motives and their own wishes. Apparently, the reason for building the tribulation temple will be based upon human motives. There is no record of God commanding it or directing its construction. Isaiah's description of this tribulation temple indicates this, and I'm reading from Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. Furthermore, moving to verse 3, Isaiah describes the religious observance of these unsaved Jews and describes them as to be hypocritical in their worship. Verse 3 tells us, He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificed a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offered an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. That's God's comment on their worship. You see, from this verse, we learn that during the first half of the tribulation, they'll be following the correct Levitical form of worship. Oh, they'll bring the offerings and oblations. But it's just as if they brought terrible idol-type worships instead. For we read that they combined their worship with their own ways of worship, reflecting their unbelieving hearts and their hypocrisy that God considered an abomination. These unsaved Jews have been deluded, according to the scriptures, by the Antichrist because of their unbelief. For we read in verse 4, I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them because when I called, None did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Clearly, the motivation for their worship will be based on their own chosen ways and delights, but not with a heart desire to please God. Oh, yes, I, the, as Jews became saved, I'm sure their worship was correct. But we're talking about the vast majority of the Jews worshiping in this first half of the tribulation. Now, at the end of the tribulation, Isaiah indicates that God will bring them, those unbelieving Jews, to a state of fear as they see the Antichrist and his army approaching Jerusalem to conquer it. In contrast, God indicates that he will look after the smaller group, the one-third who are saved, obedient Jews. Those who responded by faith to the gospel of salvation proclaimed by his 144,000 evangelists during the first half of the tribulation. This group is described by Isaiah, again in chapter 66, by verse 2. He says, But to this man, that's the true believing remnant, will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite heart, and trembleth at my word. As God so often does, he brings people to a point of decision, whether to receive his son and obey him, or to go their own ways and face the consequences. Thus, at the midpoint of the tribulation, 
the Antichrist will break his covenant with Israel, will stop temple worship. He will declare himself to be God as he stands in the Holy of Holies of the temple. For we read in Daniel 9, verse 27, this description. And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many, that's the leadership of Israel and the religious leaders of Israel, for one week. Now, prophetically, in Daniel, one week is seven-year period. And in the midst of the week, now that's the midpoint of the tribulation, he, the Antichrist, shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. Now that's the coming of the Lord, the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This is the point, at the midpoint of the tribulation, when God will test his Jewish people. The test of their obedience is given in Matthew chapter 24 in verses 15 and 21, where we read, When ye, that's the Jewish people, therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, what one spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which we just read, stand in the holy place. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Now skipping to verse 20, But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, that's the last three and a half years, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. You see, God commands the scripturally obedient Jews who have read Daniel's words, who understand the gospel, who understands and probably have read Matthew, to flee to the wilderness where he's prepared a place of refuge for them. There he will provide for and protect them during the remaining three and one-half years of the tribulation. From this point on, this believing remnant will be considered by God as the true nation, and they will be called in Scripture either the remnant, Israel, or Judah. We also read of this event in Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, where the woman of Revelation 12 represents the nation of Israel, through whom the Messiah was born. For we read, And she, now remember, that's Israel, brought forth a man-child, that's Jesus Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne, that's Christ's ascension. And the woman, that's the believing remnant of Israel, fled into the wilderness. The wilderness is a term used often of the land of Edom and Basra, where Petra is. And fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God. I believe that's the city of Petra. That they shall feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. If you work that out, that's three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. Now, Carefully notice how long the remnant is to stay in the wilderness. 1,260 days are exactly three and a half Jewish years of 360 days per year. That is the exact length of the second half of the tribulation. Now in this verse, I read the word place, a place prepared for them. That word means a dwelling place Interestingly, it is the exact same word used in John chapter 14, verse 2 of the New Testament. For the place the Lord is preparing for us when we join him at the rapture of all church-age believers. You see, for us, heaven is where we will be protected from the wrath of God during the tribulation. 
Now, for Israel, the believing remnant Israel, Petra and Basra is the place the Lord will prepare for the believing Israel during her time of danger. Just as Micah prophesied about the birthplace of the Messiah, we so often hear the verses quoted at Christmas, so too Micah referred to Basra. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. Now, in case you're not sure who he's referring to, he says it. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Now, no other place on earth provides such a unique refuge that could be referred to as a sheepfold as in Basra's city of Petra. This great fortress will provide God's physical protection from enemies who are motivated by Satan to destroy the entire nation and the Jewish race. Why will Satan do this? Certainly he will be furious because God not only has destroyed his city of Babylon, but also because God will cast him out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation, according to Revelation 12.9. Until now, Satan has had access to the throne of God so that he can accuse the brethren before God. But as high priest, Christ has been interceding for believers. Satan, once cast out of heaven, now seeks to destroy all of God's people, especially the Jews. Isaiah continues to speak of these believing Jews and contrasts them with the unbelieving Jews in verse 5 back in chapter 66 of Isaiah. We read, Hear the word of the Lord, ye, that's the remnant, that tremble at his word. Your brethren, the unbelieving Jews, that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, that's the Lord Jesus Christ's name, and said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy. You see, the believing Jews will rejoice when Christ descends from heaven to rescue them. And they, that's the unbelieving Jews, shall be ashamed. Those who remain in Jerusalem and did not flee could well be in a state of shock at the Antichrist's betrayal in breaking the covenant and their loss of temple worship. For them, the Antichrist's persecution for the next three and a half years will be the consequence of their disobedience to God and rejection of the true Messiah. This will be a time of great persecution and tribulation for not only the Jews in Israel, but also for the people of the entire world as God pours out his wrath upon the world and those who reject the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now yes, during the tribulation and the last half of the tribulation, there will be Gentile believers who have not taken the Antichrist's mark. Especially, they will be persecuted, for Satan wants to eliminate all who trust in Christ. Now as we come to the end of the tribulation, when the Antichrist gathered the nations at Armageddon, he's divided his army, leaving part to subjugate and destroy the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem, and now sending the other part to Basra to attack and destroy the believing and obedient Jews in Petra. This is the group in Petra that Christ as Messiah will return to and rescue at the end of the tribulation. The saved national remnant who fled to the wilderness are called Judah by Zechariah. 
they will be living in the tents of Basra, temporary dwellings, when they hear of the terrible events taking place in Jerusalem. Despite God's protection and provision at Petra, I believe they'll respond to the news in fear. But God plans to rescue them and then proceed back to reclaim the city of Jerusalem. For you see, we read in Zechariah 12, verse 7, The Lord also shall save the tents, that's the temporary dwellings at Basra, of Judah, that's his Israel, first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. That's the believing remnant. Like Isaiah, Micah speaks of the deliverance of that remnant from Basra in chapter 2 of Micah, verses 12 and 13, where God says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker. Now that breaker is an unusual term. It means the Messiah, the one who breaks open, who clears the way, breaks down all obstacles. The one who breaks down all obstacles is come up before them. They have broken out. That's out of the cities and have passed through the gate and gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them, the Lord at the head of them. This is God describing of bringing them out of Petra now safely and taking them back toward Jerusalem for the return of Christ as king. Notice carefully that it is the breaker, the king, the Lord who will rescue and destroy the Antichrist army at Petra and then leave the saved remnant of Israel back to Jerusalem to retake the Lord's capital. In Jeremiah, we see that just as the Lord initiated the tribulation events at the beginning by drawing Gog Magog down to Israel like a fish on a hook, Ezekiel 38.4, so too now at the end, God will again draw Israel's enemies to their destruction at the end of the tribulation, beginning at Basra. Jeremiah 49.13-14 through 14 tells us, I have heard a rumor, that's a report, from the Lord, and an ambassador, that's an envoy or messenger from God, is sent unto the heathen. This is what the heathen are going here, saying, Gather ye together and come against her and rise up to battle. God's going to do this with a purpose, to link the beginning of the tribulation, when he drew God to his destruction, with the end of the tribulation, he now will draw the Antichrist to his destruction. By doing this, God will show his beloved nation that one of his prime reasons for the tribulation, from beginning to end, has been to turn his chosen nation back to him, to recognize that his son, Jesus Christ, as the true Messiah and Deliverer, who can rescue them both physically and spiritually. It's important to note that the attack upon Basra is primarily a spiritually driven attack by Satan against the Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly armies. It's not against the Jewish people in Basra, for we read in Revelation 19 of this event, verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, that's Jesus Christ, and against his army. You see, in this verse, the Lord's army consists of his righteous angels 
and the glorified church age believers, the bride of Christ. That's us, if you know the Lord as your Savior. As the armies of the Antichrist march around Basra, surround Petra, heaven will be preparing for the Lord's return. His advent, however, is based on the nation fulfilling now two conditions that God established way back in the Old Testament. We'll look at them in a moment. In God's sheepfold of Basra, the believing Jewish remnant will find itself vulnerable to the Antichrist's approaching army. Keep in mind, Antichrist has brought his army from Jerusalem, part of his army, to destroy Petra. He's now surrounding Petra and he's planning to destroy them. Recall now how the Lord cautioned the people back in Matthew 24 at the Olivet Discourse. He cautioned them to bring nothing with them when they fled into the wilderness. They weren't to bring food, etc., but it doesn't say so, but it implies it. No weapons to defend themselves either. They're going to have to depend on the Lord's protection. You see, the Lord will have been providing them all their physical needs for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, just as he had done with their ancestors long ago as they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. Now, in the ancient world, Petra had been an impregnable fortress for those who lived there. It's a very large, bowl-like area, protected by high, insurmountable cliffs and entered by a narrow pathway. However, when we consider modern warfare that is capable of delivering drones and missiles down into the bowl of Petra, it's only natural to see how even the believing Jews might waver in their trust and become fearful as Petra is surrounded by their enemies. They're like a penned-up, sitting ducks in the bowl waiting for slaughter. Once again now, God's going to test their trust in their, his word, the scriptures, and their obedience to it. They had come, remember, in obedience to Matthew 24, 15 to flee. Now, their final deliverance will be conditioned upon them seeking the true Messiah's help according to the scriptures. During the week, just prior to his crucifixion, now that's back to the time of the Olivet Discourse, the Lord accused Israel's spiritual leaders of not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Here at Petra now, their understanding of the scriptures prompted them to flee to God's prepared refuge, and now they must obey if they want to see the power of God and his deliverance from imminent death this time to be delivered by the Messiah. You see, God's power will be on full display as Jesus Christ destroys the Antichrist's army with his breath, the sword coming out of his mouth alone. Christ needs no armies to fight with him. Rather, for us, as part of his army, we're really brought along not only because of his promises, but to be witnesses to the power of God. In addition, to the believing remnant seeing the power of God that was about to take place. God's word gives the nation of Israel two conditions that they must fulfill before he will send his son to rescue them and take them back to the land of Israel. We read in Acts chapter 3 verses 19 and 20 where he says, 
Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing, that's his coming, shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he, now he is God the Father, shall send Jesus Christ, that's God the Son, which before was preached unto you. Thus, national repentance is the first condition that must precede Jesus Christ's return to rescue true believing Israel and restore it as his chosen nation. Now on your screen you'll see a list of the references that support this concept and this condition. Specifically, we can look at 2 Chronicles 7.14, a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. The remnant nation must turn to God in repentance and humility. We read further in Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 42, that affirms that this is what must be done. If they, that's the people, the nation of Israel, shall confess their iniquity, and notice, the iniquity of their fathers, that means all that went before them with Israel, with their trespasses they have trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then, number one, their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and two, they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, also my covenant with Isaac, also my covenant with Abraham, will I remember, and I'll remember the land. Now, it's very important to understand. In the Bible, the word remember means to look back to a promise or a covenant, meditate on it, and then act. Remember always is an action word that means calling something of the past to mind, but acting on it. It does not indicate thinking about something that's been forgotten. Hmm, like a poem, I can't remember my poem anymore. Or I can't remember. No, 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 no. God can't forget. Ah, we often hear this brought up that, well, you know, he'll, act, he'll forgive, remember my sins no more. Well, no, it isn't that God's forgetful. God chooses not to recall and act upon our sins that have been covered by our faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrections. Our sins he will remember no more. He will never act on those sins ever again. Once, You've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, in Hosea chapter 5, at the very end of chapter 5, verse 15, and the first verse of chapter 6, it reinforces the emphasis of Leviticus 26 by again indicating that Israel as a nation must repent completely as a united group of people, much like when they gathered together to confirm the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. God wants the entire nation to repent for disobeying his commands and rejecting Jesus Christ as Messiah. Their entire history of rejection they are to repent of. All must join in repentance, not just some of the people, before the Lord will come. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 tells us, And I, that's Jesus Christ, will go and return to my place at the right hand of God the Father till they, national Israel, 
acknowledge their offense, and two, seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. Come, let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. As we go on to verses 2 and 3 of Hosea, we learn even more about what will happen. As they have done that, after two days, he will revive us. And in the third day, he will raise us up. We shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning. He shall come unto us, that's the return to the earth, as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Now that's a Hebrew idiom that means God's spiritual blessing upon people in the latter and former rain. These verses clearly indicate that three days will be involved in this revival. There will be two days of national repentance. And on the third day, they will be made alive again. That's resurrected as a nation. This reminds us of two other biblical passages. The pattern of God, if you will. One was the resurrection of the Lord when? On the third day, he came alive again. And if we go to Ezekiel 37, the famous Ezekiel's dry bones passage, it speaks of this very end time event as national event at Petra as God brings to life the risen bones, sinews, etc. During these two days, the leadership, priests, and people of Petra will repent and confess Israel's sins as a nation. They will acknowledge that God has been just in chastising Israel throughout its history, and in particular the tribulation. For his purpose, they will recognize, was all to turn the nation back to him in genuine repentance and revival. They, I believe they'll look at the Old Testament, all the incidents where Israel turned away from God, and they'll say, oh Lord, forgive our nation for that. Then significantly, after the two days of confession, we read, then shall we know his going forth, and he shall come unto us as the rain. After two days, the remnant of the nation will see Jesus of Nazareth, the true Messiah, and King of Israel returning. If you will, this is the reverse of Christ's rejection by the leadership, the priesthood, and the people at the crucifixion week way long ago. That's when the nation rejected the Messiah, and it's recorded in Matthew 21 to 25. The probable confession of those two days, I think, could be summarized from Isaiah chapter 53 and familiar passage to us. I think this summarizes the entire two days of confession. It says, Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's Israel. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, think how appropriate this would be, they're in the sheepfold of Basra. All we sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, the Lord, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, yes, this is certainly a beautiful passage, and the verses can apply to us personally in our sins. But it also is a national confession of Israel's past and its rejection of the Messiah. And yet what he did for the nation, what he did for the people of the nation, and what he has done for all people who are willing to accept him as their Savior. This time, now at Petra, the people will confess their corporate sin of rejecting and crucifying the Messiah at his first coming. For many of the people of Jesus' day, falsely regard him as being just another man and a blasphemer who claimed to be God. Others looked upon Jesus as a prophet with a message, a message they didn't want to hear. Therefore, they killed him, just as their ancestors had killed so many prophets before Jesus Christ. They rejected God the Father's love for them by rejecting his son that he sent to save them. For in Matthew 23, verse 37, we see the Lord's last great accusation of the rejection of his love, where we read Jesus Christ crying out, speaking for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and notice carefully, and ye would not. God says they had made a willful choice. The entire nation had made that willful choice. If you carefully read Matthew in this section, you'll see it was the leaders of the nation. It was the priesthood. It was the people of Israel. And now in the final days of the tribulation, a choice is offered, a similar choice is offered to the modern nation of Israel that are at Petra. Unlike the earlier nation of Israel, the remnant nation of Israel will respond to God's love. It, it, it's so important to understand the nation's actions throughout Israel's history reflects the nation's attitude and relationship with God. We're not talking here about individual repentance. Yes, there's a place for that, and that's true. But remember, this remnant has received Christ. They have repented of their sins. They're just like you and I. They have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. We are talking about a national, unified repentance. We aren't talking about individual repentance and salvation in this passage. But we are talking about the need for Israel's repentance and reconciliation to her God as his nation. Throughout history, many Old Testament Jewish individuals have looked to the promised Savior by obeying God and his word. 
They are the righteous Old Testament saints. During the church age, a Jewish remnant has believed and received Jesus Christ as Savior, and they've become part of the bride of Christ, the church. They are this part of this unique group. Only when we fully understand that Israel's response at Petra is the exact opposite to their response in the Lord's day when he approached Jerusalem and they crucified him at the end of the week. You see, when we understand the past with this future event, we recognize why the prophecy of the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 21 to 25 is so important to Israel's history. For it was primarily intended to be read, Matthew, during the tribulation. I would urge you to go back and watch our videos that cover much of the Olivet Discourse. Now, also, as I taught in my earlier video on atonement, that video is entitled, The Day of Atonement, The Feast of the Lord, this event will make a national atonement or national cleansing so that Israel can serve the Lord in the millennial kingdom under the new covenant as a righteous nation. Again, this is the cleansing spoken of by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 29. I would like to read those now. For I will take from among the, you from among the heathen, gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. Ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols, while I cleanse you. He's speaking of the nation. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. You shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And notice, ye shall be my people. I will be your God. Israel's two days of repentance at Petra will fulfill God's first requirement that must precede the Messiah's return to Israel and the earth. The second required condition is for Israel to call out and cry for deliverance now. When the nation cries to God for deliverance, the second condition will be fulfilled. Zechariah 13.9 tells us God's response. He says, And I will bring the third part, that's the remnant, through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, will try them as gold is tried. They shall call upon my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Just as the glorified Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day, so too Israel will see the glorified risen Lord begin his descent from heaven to resurrect his chosen nation. This will be Israel's national resurrection and given new life according to Ezekiel. The Lord Jesus Christ will come in the clouds. Yes, in the same manner when he departed into heaven according to Acts 1.11, he went into the clouds, now he's going to come from the clouds. It is this national action on the third day that Paul was writing about in Romans chapter 11 verses 25 to 27 where he wrote, For I would not, brethren, speaking of the Jewish brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, 
that blindness in part is happened to Israel until, notice, only until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel, that's the remaining one-third obedient believing remnant, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto you, when I shall take away their sins, the national sins. You see, having obeyed the two conditions for the Lord's return, the remnant, this believing remnant of Israel, the prophecy of Matthew 23, verse 39, will now be fulfilled. And Christ said, For I say unto you, ye, that's the nation of Jesus' day, shall not see me henceforth, till ye, the believing remnant at Petra, shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. For the first time, the entire nation of Israel and Petra will see Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ coming to their rescue. And yes, their faith will now be made sight. Psalm 80, verses 17 through 19, we read, Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man whom thou madest strong for thyself. So will not we go back from thee? Quicken us, make us alive, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. As the Lord begins his descent, with his army of angels and his glorified bride, the church. The fourth stage of the campaign of Armageddon will be fulfilled as the Lord alone destroys the Antichrist's army surrounding Petra with the sword of his mouth. Think of the power of God being demonstrated at this point. The Apostle John describes this long-awaited event in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. John says, I saw heaven opened, Behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. That's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he will smite the nations. Notice, he will smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Thus begins Jesus Christ's return to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords as he rescues his nation and leads them back to Jerusalem where he will deliver the city into his hands and theirs. Please join me in our next video as we focus upon the fifth and last stage of the campaign of Armageddon. We will see Jerusalem delivered, the Lord's feet touched down to the Mount of Olives, the Antichrist and his armies destroyed and Satan bound. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily and I will either see you here or in the air.